Namaste. So we continue with Collected Works of Shirobindo, Volume 35, Letters on Himself and the Ashram. Few interesting things, as I have been saying, that all the letters with regard to ashram are not only here. There are some letters in autobiographical notes which relate to the period before 1926 when money is coming. Ashram is not yet formed, and some letters which are with regard to certain people who came, certain interviews that were given, etc. Uh, then, of course, letters on the mother contain number of letters with regard to the ashram and the mother's. Uh, some people would say role in it, but. the ashram is <laughs> nothing else but mother shirobindo but the bulk of letters would be here now it's interesting to see a little bit that shirobindo used the word ashram without an h a s r a m so later on because people were he would dictate the letter and people who would write or type it out they typed as a s h r a m so now the standard acceptance is of a s h r a m <coughs> second is that there are many letters which uh, over a period of time the ashram itself has evolved changed one such thing is for instance children children were strictly not admitted in the ashram in fact shirobindo would uh, below 10 years no way because the atmosphere was too intense and the children would not be able to bear it but with the second world war subsequently the children were admitted a whole school was started so uh, people even asked the mother that what about the atmosphere and the intensity and she said we had to accept this difficulty and then the cushion of divine love so certain things which applied then have changed because children were admitted which children came families so families were again not admitted in the ashram and if they are admitted the uh, understanding was that either the husband or wife will not stay together they will stay as individuals or else in certain cases they were allowed to be together but it was understood that they will not continue with the old way of ties old way of ties primarily involved the sexual ties so that had to go completely that was the main reason and here is a letter there are number of letters with regard to relations between men and women in the ashram this is important because in this ashram we see enormous amount of freedom no other ashram allows this most ashram will not admit ashram for men and women together many of them will keep men ashrams as separate and other monasteries are separate except the uh, many of the vaishnava ashram there they allow and <clears throat> someone asked shirobindo interesting question it is how is it that when i am talking to a sadhika i don't feel anything but afterward the memory or image brings the sex sense see how clear, how threadbare people used to look inside and ask your bindu why should a sadhak not be able to speak to a sadhika as he would to anybody else very practical question and shivind replies in an ashram or other religious institution men and women are not usually allowed to live together we know that in churches in any of the most these institutions they are not allowed to live together where they do as among the vaishnavas these difficulties invariably arise the difficulty lies in the enormous place given to sex in the lower nature and that's why we see the mother when she started this uh, uh, 
uh, children and the playground and then people would think about boys and girls and she would repeatedly say why do you keep thinking about boys and girls and why can't you get rid of this idea of course their idea of getting rid of it was not the way modern world conceived but this biological differences are there they have their place but not to keep thinking about it so partly it is because of boredom so everybody is busy then of course physical activity through which you sublimate and then when you l- stay together and grow eventually the mastery is much greater because you it's it's all right you are used to growing up in a certain way so shobindra says it's because of the enormous place given to sex in the lower nature so when our consciousness is on the lower planes it assumes a much greater importance for us and then we start uh seeing these things but there is no reason if one fixes oneself firmly in the spiritual consciousness why one should not speak and act between men and women without the least reference to sex so he gives the practical side as well as what should be <clears throat> so then the next question is can we not justify buddha ramakrishna and others who advocated isolation from women after all is it not essentially the same principle here because if vital relations are devoured nothing remains except a simple exchange of words see how people have asked more minutely and shobindra's reply what about the true in brackets not the pretended psychic and spiritual forgetting sex the relation has to be limited as it is because sex immediately trots into the front you are invited to live above the vital and deeper than the vital then only you can use the vital right so he's saying it's not that it's not allowed or things like that you have to understand so try to live deep within from the psychic spiritual poise and then you interact and it comes as one grows in this life buddha was for nirvana and what is the use of having relations with anybody if you are bound for nirvana ramakrishna insisted on isolation during the period when a man is spiritually raw he did not object to it when he became ripe and no longer a slave of sex so that's what we see with regard to swami vivekananda his own uh, what he advocated himself and spoke about him so then somebody asked about the prestige of the ashram being uh, uplifted because of some of these big people like durai swami ayer as we know he was a advocate in the court uh, so oh such a big man is coming <clears throat> so shobindra's reply queer idea all you fellows seem to have of the prestige of the ashram the prestige of an institution claiming to be a center of spirituality lies in its spirituality not in newspaper columns or famous people is it because of this mundane view of life and of the ashram held by the sadhaks that this ashram is not yet the center of spirituality it set out to be because people give so much importance to uh, outer name fame prestige this person has come oh is and everybody goes uh, you know uh, after it and then something which is so important especially when people come and go so there are two atmospheres in the ashram ours and that of the sadhaks when people with a little perceptiveness come from outside 
they are struck by the deep calm and peace in the atmosphere because frankly they don't know anyone so it's so easy when they come from outside <laughs> there is the samadhi there is shrivinda's room and naturally they are engaged either in the playground meditation or the samadhi meditation and everything is beautiful because they are opening to mother and shrivinda then as they start coming unfortunately a trend starts setting in they get to know people socialization begins and all kinds of activities so shrivinda says and it is only when they mix much with the sadhaks that this perception and influence fade away the other atmosphere of dullness or unrest is created by the sadhaks themselves if they were open to the mother as they should be they would live in the calm and peace and not in unrest or dullness so when we come in contact with the human atmosphere it's the same human beings and that to human beings in the making makes it even more difficult because uh, in outside life at least there is a facade of basic demeanor and you know people uh, engage in a certain way but here those facades are gone there is no outer compulsion nobody will fire you if you misbehave your salary will not get affected you will not be downgraded so all the more the inner nature comes out much more freely plus the pressure of the ashram atmosphere un as if it unearths all that is hidden inside the subconscious so because of that it is always advisable whether when we come from outside or when we live here to more and more remain with the atmosphere of mother and shrivinda so this is what shrivinda and the mother's advice is is a very interesting question somebody asked elsewhere people try to find out various qualities in their guru to prove him an avatar here some try to find out reasons to disprove even the possibility i see shrivinda's answers are very interesting it's not just about what he writes but see all that he holds back he doesn't say oh they don't know they don't know what i have done what i have achieved they don't know my achievements otherwise they would know that i am an avatar nothing of that kind one liner it is a modern ashram that's why so he is very clearly he is suggested hinted he is not denied that well i am not an avatar at the same time he is not trying to prove a point he simply says because it's a modern ashram so people are too logicized people highly analytical because he has to take upon the yuga dharma of the age that's why we see shrivindo keeps explaining logically somewhere else they would say you should just believe that's it in primitive religions it was just like that blind belief here shrivindo is explaining one after another in great detail to everybody because it's a modern ashram but then another place i have a strong faith that you are the divine incarnate in bhagavati tanu or divine who has taken a body am i right shobindo's reply follow your faith it is not likely to mislead you now we see why the mother said shobindo is a perfect gentleman otherwise he is saying yes you're right <laughs> but he is saying it your faith follow it and it will not mislead you it is not likely to mislead you then someone started comparing him with krishna 
Shobindo's way of writing. You can't, I mean, this is the beauty. Actually, it's not so much about just the information, but the joy of coming in contact with Shobindo's consciousness. And we begin to change because it is an humbling experience. To me, at least, when I read Shobindo, it is so humbling. I mean, just by outer achievements, if you see, Shobindo is somebody with, uh, you know, who is, he was studied, he is a master of languages. Uh, by the time he is writing these letters, this letter which I am going to read, 1945, he has already written a series of aria. He has become famous over the world in India. He is regarded as the, uh, in a, many ways, the originator, the soul of the spiritual movement. All this of the, uh, you know, Indian movement, revolutionary movement. And then he is already working on the world's famous, what is going to become the foremost epic in the world, Savitri. And all this is there. But look at the humility. You can't expect me to argue about my own spiritual greatness in comparison with Krishna's. <clears throat> See, it is so interesting because compare it with recently, there was one of the uh, spiritual masters uh, talk in a very little, uh, not, not a very good language. And in that language, oh, devotees of uh, Sherbindo try to say that he is greater than Krishna and things like that. Uh, it was something not not in good taste. It's not about saying this, but the same thing could be said in a different way. You know, like you well, people have their belief and faith, and each is free. That's what Sri Krishna teaches. Incidentally, Sri Krishna doesn't teach uh, that call me the greatest. Now look at the way Shurabindo responds to this question. That shows the mark of spiritual greatness. You can't expect me to argue about my own spiritual greatness in comparison with Krishna. The question itself would be relevant only if there were two sectarian religions in opposition, Aurobindonism and Vaishnavism. Very beautifully, he has very subtly hinted the tendency to form sects, each insisting on its own God's greatness. You see, this actually happens in Vaishnavites and Shaivites, and you see in the Puranas, you will see the fight. So, in, the, in one Purana, Shiva is regarded as very inferior deity, almost uh, he is demonic. <laughs> Why? Because he allows the Asuras, he is favorable to the Asuras. And in another one, if you go, then uh, it is Shiva who is ultimate and everything. So, Shirvinda says, that is not the case, there is no sect here. And then, what Krishna must I challenge? Here comes the spiritual side of Shurabindo, brought in fullness. What Krishna must I challenge? The Krishna of the Gita, who is the transcendent Godhead, Paramatma, Parabrahma, Purushottama, the cosmic deity, master of the universe, Vasudev, who is all, the imminent in the heart of all creatures. Is, do you want me to challenge that Krishna? Of the Gita, this is the Krishna of the Gita. Or the Godhead who was incarnated Vrindavan and Dwarka and Kurushetra and who was the guide of my yoga. So you see he is also drawing the little subtle distinction that this, the, the divine incarnate is uh, that transcendent Godhead. In the Gita, Sri Krishna reveals that aspect. And Shurabindra says it's, it was, the Gita was spoken in a state of supernormal consciousness. That moment, Sri Krishna was all identified with the Supreme. That's why he says, um, Sarva Dharman Paritya Jamamikam Sharnam Raja. That Krishna. But on the other side, there is the incarnate, who is like a, 
as Sri Krishna himself says, among the vibhutis, Vrishnis, I am Krishna. So, and with whom I realized identity. So, he has already says that I have realized identity with him. Should I argue then about my greatness or his? All that is not to me something philosophical or mental, but a matter of daily and hourly realization and intimate to the stuff of my consciousness. Then from what position can I adjudicate this dispute? X thinks I am superior in greatness. You think there can be nothing greater than Krishna. Each is entitled to have his own view or feeling. Whether it is itself right or not, it can be left there. It can be no reason for your leaving the ashram. <laughs> it must be Dilip Kumar Roy. I have a feeling. That no, no, no. Nobody can be greater than Krishna. If people say so, I am going. He says, leave people to their own view. Why do you want to become so sectarian, rigid, dogmatic? But at the same time, he is hinting that he has realized identity with Krishna and it's not just a question of once in it. It is something which is day in and day out, his constant state. And then he says that, well, each one has the right to believe what they want to believe. Then there is a very interesting letter. People often talk about yogic force, spiritual force and its, its uh, you know, capacity to heal. They even invoke, they call the mother's force that do something and, and then things happen, don't happen, etc. So, someone has asked him the question, I tried to convince X that it was your force that cured Y. But X said, What about instances in which the divine force has failed? Why does it succeed in some cases and not in others? Very valid question. It's a question which many people naturally have. So what does Sri say? The mistake is to think that it must be either a miraculous force or else none. So this all or none doesn't exist in this world. In all cases it must work like divine omnipotence. Because in this, the moment creation comes into being, conditions apply. It is automatic. Why? Because one thing after another in terms of time creates a chain of cause and effect. That is something which uh, when we see that Savitri is face to face with the Supreme and she asks for uh, this earth to be redeemed. He says there are plenty of links. They all will be disrupted. If there were no men but all were gods. So it is a huge work. It's not just picking up a few human beings and transporting them into another dimension. It's a tremendous work because everybody is interconnected. No, no life is in isolation with you know, the world which is around. So when we talk about, for instance, a person prays to the divine for cure. Now he is also using the doctor. He is also having doubts going on in his mind. He is also having a very bad heredity. His soul may choose whether to live or to leave. All this is taking place simultaneously. And of course the medicine that the doctor is using may have its own side effects or good effects. And the divine has to work on this entire complex net of forces. So it is very easy to say and there are number of examples. Uh, I know of one person who had tuberculosis of the spine and the doctor said advised surgery and then he asked the mother, mother said, do as you please. 
So then he took second opinion. Somebody came from abroad. He said, it's already delayed. You need to go for surgery and treatment simultaneously. It was probably an abscess, spots, spine and some cold abscess that needed to be drained. That's my understanding. So then again, uh, the same question was asked. So uh, mother said, do as you please. Because that second surgeon also advised. He said, mother, I don't want now to do as I please. I can't understand. You tell me. Whatever you tell me, I'm going to do it. Then she said, remember that only grace can cure you. Have faith in the grace. Then he abandoned everything and had faith in the grace. And he got uh, not only cured, lived 40 years hereafter. But to somebody else, he would say, well, go and take the medicine. Because someone else, he would say, both things. Take the medicine and have faith in the grace. Third person, she will say, go to the doctor in whom you have faith in. So it is not as simple that I called and I got well or I didn't get well. So he says very clearly, there is no miraculous force and I do not deal in miracles. In the sense that vital miracles that you bring out something and you say he is healed. So Shrivinder is reminding us that and mother particularly said that, well, we don't deal with that kind of miracle because it um, brings into play lot of forces in the vital world which are and to use them is to justify Give sanction to the falsehood. A lot of people do that kind of. You'll see in mass healings and of course much of it is staged also. But that apart. That's not. They want to work on the roots. What is the point of leaving the roots which will come up in another way? So the word divine here is out of place. If it is taken as an always omnipotently acting power. Because that power we are not ready to even receive. Very clearly even in second world war Shirobindo used the over mind force. Because he said that world is not ready to receive. Yogic force is then better. Better to use the word yogic force. It simply means a higher consciousness using its power, a spiritual and supraphysical force acting on the physical world directly. One has to train the instrument to be a channel of this force. It works also according to a certain law and under certain conditions. So it is not the absolute omnipotent force acting all the time, everywhere, arbitrarily. Then there would be probably no creation or (laughs) no challenge, no difficulty. The divine does not work arbitrarily or as a thaumaturge. Thaumaturge is a magician who does miracles. He acts upon the world along the lines that have been fixed by the nature and purpose of the world we live in. By an increasing action of the thing that has to manifest, not by a sudden change or disregard of all the conditions of the work to be done. All who walk the path know that when you have a difficulty, struggle against, what really ends up with victory is perseverance and endurance. It never happens that you have a tendency, you have a difficulty and you pray and today it is gone. Yes, it looks like it is gone. After some days it will come up again. Again, perceiver, perceiver, perceiver. One day it will vanish. Even then it will be in the environment consciousness from it where it will tend to come in. Even if you throw it away, it will be there in the subconscious from where it will tend to come in. So it's a whole process. It's not like today I prayed and now this, my anger has vanished forever. Any tendency takes time and one has to persist. But if one perceivers, yes, it will vanish from the roots. If it were not so, there would be no need of yoga. Such a simple, we just got admitted in the ashram and we wake up omnipotent force and we are all uh, golden hairs and all, you know, (laughs) 
shining bodies. So, so he says, if that were, it were not so, there would be no need of yoga or time or human action or instruments or of a master and disciples or of a descent or anything else. It could simply be a matter for the tathastu and nothing more. So all that will be required is to say tathastu. But that would be irrational if you like and worse than irrational, childish. So he's reminding us, this does not mean that interventions... Things apparently miraculous do not happen. They do. But all cannot be like that. It can happen. But you can't make it a way of life and can't make it a universal rule that in everybody all the time miracles should continue to happen. So very clearly says miracles also have a process. We think it is miraculous because we don't know the process. Somebody claps and the light comes up. It's miraculous. But if you ask, they, they know there is a process. So there is a sound vibration, got transmitted, got connected, there are sensors. So there is a process, there has to be a receptive. If there is no sensors, you can't clap anywhere and ask the light to come up, because there are no sensors. So there is a receptivity and openness of the human instrument, the degree to which it is open in different parts. So it's a whole science, which we need to remember. And then he says, I have not yet written about the force because it is too complex complex to be adequately stated in a short space and I had no time these days for anything long. Anyhow, the clue is that the force does not act in a void and in an absolute way like a writing on a blank paper or in the air, the let there be light and there was light. So this is, you know, several places like the law of karma, people oversimplify it. You have done this, that's what, mathematics. But karma involves many things. Karma involves not just the action. It involves thoughts, it involves feelings, will, contradictions inside, the motive, intent, the past evolution which has prepared us, the present number of forces at play. Somebody is impelled to do a certain karma, even a ghor karma under the pressure of environment. Many things can happen, like a person stealing because he is, uh, you know, not having uh, sufficient food. Or... Uh, the same karma done, uh, somebody who doesn't steal openly, he doesn't open a jar and pick a bread and run away, but he steals your pocket by, in a very, uh, you know, through, by selling you a branded product. So now that, we don't use the word stealing, no? We go in very respectable shop and, <laughs> but it is stealing. <laughs> Probably much worse because you are um, simply making a product somewhere else much cheaper and then you are putting a stamp and you are selling at a much bigger price. So all this is, divine vision sees all this. It doesn't see just one single thing. And then the future of each one. So Yudhishthir and all have to suffer because their future is to become the model samrat of Aryavarta. Duryodhana is born a prince, dies a prince. Okay, he goes through a little tough time at the time of death. That's it. But that is because Duryodhana's life is meant to be like that. It's not meant to rise to the levels to which Yudhishthira and Arjun can rise. So all this come into play in just karma. So the divine when he acts takes into cognizance the entire totality. It comes as a force with a capital F intervening and acting on a very complex nexus of forces that were in action and displacing their disposition and interrelated movement and natural result by a new disposition, movement and result. 
so it is like doing a very micro surgery separating so that when you try to remove something it shouldn't happen that other parts that are connected by the same nerve get affected we don't like to do that way na we want, we like this way or that way <laughs> but divine has his way so it meets in so doing a certain opposition very often a strong opposition from many of the forces already in position and operation if it divine tries to put a pressure these forces come up with much greater resistance and we are the ones who have nurtured them to overcome it three factors are needed the power of the force itself that is its own sheer pressure and direct action on the field of action the instrument the person who is receiving the force and the instrumentation treatment medicine that's also important the doctor and then the medicine dravagun all these are important at any given point of time i have often used the force alone without any human instrument or outer means but here all depends on the recipient and his receptivity unless as in the case of many healers there are unseen beings or powers that assist so this is a wonderful letter uh, which he at the end after a long passage says this is a very summary and inadequate statement but it gives the main points i believe so all this idea of you know i have prayed and i must be fine yes it can happen but you can't uh, draw a conclusion that if it didn't happen the divine force was not acting or the mother has uh, you know uh, not cared about you know she is caring you have to just go through that process there there is the famous letter of uh, uh, sahanadi who asked that i am continuing to have so much bleeding and all this uh, and then shubhendu sent a reply tell her that the mother and myself are doing what needs to be done for her these are the last remnants of the sexual desire and it's better that they come out of the system this way now nobody would imagine that this is how they are working it was not about just checking the whole thing so this is the way and then again he write ps <laughs> is very interesting i forgot to say now as i said i feel very sweet these little things from shirobindo ps i forgot to say that the surroundings especially the people around the patient the atmosphere the suggestions it carries or they give to them are often of a considerable importance so when a person is in hospital there are people sometimes given up over terminal stage gone nothing and we may not realize it's not only given it is transmitted uh, by thoughts sometimes very openly or oh, very sad this has happened before it has happened it has happened it's almost like saying malum hai now you know you are a question of few days and this is we should not do that we should remain what the divine wants to do leave it to him so all this uh, and people often wonder how things work out in the ashram this is a question people ask because people want to see a logically uh, definable action <laughs> but it doesn't work they want an institution where everything is arranged in a formal way and so here question is asked what seems to me of more importance is to try to explain how things are worked out here indeed very few are the people who understand it and still fewer those who realize it so often people take two extremes 
One is, everything that happens here is the mother doing it. A very dangerous proposition because that means whatever we may do, we pass it on to her. I have seen people say this. The other extreme is it's no more that ashram, it is you know all taken over by human people. It is always a play between the divine and the human. This is the pressure of the divine and this is the human response. And through that, and if we take everything as a grace, everything will turn as a grace. Doesn't matter which way. So Sri says, there has never been at any time a mental plan, a fixed program or an organization decided beforehand. The whole thing has taken birth, grown and developed as a living being by a movement of consciousness, chit-tapas, constantly maintained, increased and fortified. So that's what is happening here. And those who live here, they continue to experience it, that it is by the pressure of the force. And that force, that influence, continue to radiate, operate. Now naturally, if more people come, many things, then there will be many difficulties. Mother says that, that um, if more number of people come, it means increase of difficulties in the collective atmosphere. And yet they would accept it and they would increase the pressure. And then each one has to go through their own shifting, constant shifting that is taking place. A tremendous pace. We can't even imagine because we are concerned only about our little self. But the entire thing is taken into account. Like when the children came, the mother said that we have taken this problem little bit prematurely. But then it's okay. We'll have a more complex and complete realization. That's how the mother, if you see the how the atmosphere changed, not now, but since children came. All these school children, they started, you know, moving around little candies and you know <laughs> singing <laughs> see it's okay we'll take this challenge and grow through it so what stands in the way of the smooth working number one the preconceived ideas and mental constructions which block the way to the influence and the working of the conscious force preconceived ideas for instance if let us say this did not happen then people waste time in thinking, oh, mother has kept me away, nothing. You form your connection with the mother, nobody and nothing can come in the way. So this is the first part. Second, the preferences and impulses of the vital which distort and falsify the expression. So there is the divine element and there is the human element. Nar Narayan, both are at play. Both these things are the natural output of the ego. So if this is not there, the ashram would beautifully grow. It is destined to grow. There is no doubt about it. Because it's a creation of the divine. But whether it will grow very smoothly, whether it will go through, it depends on how we are open and receptive. We don't put our egos, preferences. And then she says, you are quite right when you do not believe in mother likes, mother dislikes. It is quite a childish interpretation. Here now, even many of the old times, mother likes this and mother does not like this. She says, but otherwise a great freedom of action is left to all. Because the conscious force can express itself in innumerable ways. And for the perfection and integrality of the manifestation, no ways are to be a priori excluded. So we don't know how it will express itself. It cannot be a standardized formula cut for everybody. So this is a wonderful background. This whole book closes with a very beautiful section. 
And that is mantras in the integral yoga because that's one thing we all. <laughs> what are the mantras? Now, Shivindu's letter makes it very clear. The idea of your friend that it is necessary to receive a mantra from here, and for that he must come is altogether wrong. There is no mantra given in this yoga. It is the opening of the consciousness to the mother from within. That is the true initiation. How to know we are initiated? We are open to the mother. That's as simple as that. If mantra is needed, it will spring up from within by that opening. That's what the mother says. Then a mantra has a meaning if it comes from within by the promptings of the psychic being. It has surged somewhere and taken it. And the sign that this mantra is operating is even in dream and sleep, inner being. That's where the mantra continues. But it's not something given from outside. To one and everybody that use this mantra, it doesn't work. The mother even says somebody else would get wonderful realization. Another person may be left cold as a turkey. So there is no copying in this yoga. So as we open, to come here is not the way to get it. Many come and get nothing or get their difficulties raised and even fall away from the yoga. It is no use coming before one is ready. And he does not even seem to be ready. He is with regard to someone. Strong desire is not a proof of readiness. When he is inwardly ready, then there will be no difficulty about his coming. So the simple way was, when you are ready, you will come. <laughs> Instead of asking the question, am I ready? When you are ready, you will come. That is the simplest answer. Then still, people want to know. You want some mantra, sir, please give us something. So he says, as a rule, the only mantra used in this sadhana is that of the mother or of my name and the mother. Sri Aravindaha, Sri Aravindaha, Sri Aravindaha, Sharanamama. Or ma, 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 ma. Or mother Sri Aravinda is my refuge. The concentration in the heart and the concentration in the head can both be used. Each has its own result. Even a triple concentration above the head, Shurabindu says that. And with this mantra, mother's name or Shurabindu. Nothing else is required. The first opens up the psychic being and brings bhakti, love and union with the mother. Her presence within the heart and the action of her force in the nature. The other opens the mind to self-realization, to the consciousness of what is above mind, to the ascent of the consciousness out of the body and the descent of the higher consciousness into the body. So this is a concentration in the heart, which brings love, bhakti, devotion, and concentration in the head, and above the head, which opens to the higher states of consciousness, and their descent, and an ascension of consciousness. So then he gives certain mantras. One of them is, of course, we all know, There is one very interesting mantra which is, of course, we all know Om Anandamai Chaitanyamai Satyamai Parame. This mantra has a very interesting history. Shurabindu wrote this mantra around 1927 as one of several miscellaneous notations connected with record of yoga. Note that he did not complete the transliteration in Latin script. So he wrote, Om Anandamai Chaitanyamai Satyamai Parame in the Devanagari. 
In English, she wrote Om Anandamai Chaitanyamai. The text was first published as a message in November 1955. Still later, the mother completed the transliteration in her own hand. So, it is a wonderful mantra where the English translation, the mother completed. Same thing. But Shivabindi, he must have, while saying, I am sure, Om Anandamai Chaitanyamai, he must have travelled to God knows. Uh, it's a very powerful mantra. And then there is uh, people who look for what is the meaning. There's number of mantras. I'll just quickly read them through. Om Tat Sat Jyotir Aravindaha. Om Satyam Jnanam Jyotir Aravindaha. These have been written in Shurabindha's notebook at different points of time. Shurabindha did not give this mantra. Okay, you meditate on this mantra. No, they have been discovered. And then people often ask, what is the meaning of this mantra? Om Tat Savitur. In fact, Shubhindu doesn't use the word Om. Like many Vedic mantras, it's not with Om. Om is come later on. Uh, it is there in the Vedas, but not the way now we use everything starting with Om. But the mantra that Shubhindu has given, in Shubhindu's handwriting, Tat Savitur Varam Rupam Jyotihi Parasyadhimahi Yannaha Satyena Deepayet. So people ask what is the meaning. And you'll see number of, uh, even people have done discourses on this mantra. But Shurabindha is himself given the meaning. So we'll find it in volume 35 of Collected Works of Shurabindha. In the section on, on mantras, the meaning of this Sanskrit mantra is given. It is the new Gayatri mantra where there is the invocation to the, the divine most auspicious form. So he gives the meaning, let us meditate on the most auspicious, in brackets, best form of Savitri, on the light of the Supreme, which shall illumine us with the truth. So why he is asking for the most auspicious, the best form? So we know that when the Gayatri Mantra is also an invocation of the sun, but it speaks of the rays descending into us. So that's how it is. You know, it, it illumines the mind and it comes from the Swarlok where the Rishis had risen. The most auspicious form is the supramental. So it's an invocation of the supramental and it is invoked to transform. That's why that is the big difference. And Shobindu himself gives the meaning. Let us meditate on the most auspicious form of Savitri, on the light of the Supreme which shall illumine us with the truth. And then there is very interesting, you all have heard this mantra. Om Asato Ma Sadgamya Tamaso Ma Jyotir Gamya Mrityur Ma Amritam Gamya Om Shanti 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 Shubhinda is written below it, Tathastu. Just imagine, who is Shubhinda? Tathastu. As if he has blessed this mantra of the ages. It's the aspiration of the ages. Human aspiration. This is the human aspiration of, of the life divine. And he has blessed it. So be it. So, this is because one of the disciples wrote this quotation from the Brihadaranik Upanishad in his notebook. Below it, Sri wrote Tathastu. So be it. 
of course there are english mantra also and uh, many of them are in the form of a prayer there is one which was given to amal kiran one of my own favorites om shurbindo mira open my mind my heart my life to your light your love your power in all things may i see the divine this another which we know that uh, was given to champaklal ji it's not uh, in this volume i couldn't find um, so that's in the night as in the day be always with me in sleep and in waking let me feel in me always the reality of thy presence let it sustain and make to grow in me truth consciousness and bliss constantly and at all times very interesting this mantra om shurbindo mira so it is asked the disciple asks a question i feel very grateful for the mantra and the prayer especially the last line of the prayer in all things may i see the divine has made me very glad since it expresses my own deepest aspiration to which i have been partial for many years have i to consider the names and the prayer as one mantra shurbindo mira and then shurbindo's reply is yes oh it is there in the night as in the day be always with me I, this also is found here uh, here it is not written to whom it was given but that doesn't matter uh, this was given to champaklal ji in the night as in the day om shurbindo mira to amal kiran but well now it is for all of us then this section and the book closes with birthday messages for disciples so here i'll just read two of them one was for durai swami durai swami you know the famous lawyer uh, who used to come every saturday sunday from chennai and if somebody would call him that time they would send there was a telegram once required urgently and he say he is tell them durai swami is dead he will be alive on monday <laughs> so <laughs> it reminded me of the story of king janak and he was indeed janak and chandragupta both in his past life it there in shobindo's records of yoga so what he said was just like king janak mithila is burning mithila is burning i am at the feet of my master he knew and this was actually a test for him because his disciples didn't understand why uh, yagnwalk is giving so much special attention to um you know king janak and then he and his disciples understood here is a person who is totally surrendered whereas another person another person came and told oh there is some storm has come and monkeys have come and they are uh, eating away your copin and all the disciples rushed whereas deva janak he said i am at the feet of my master we can wait so two beautiful messages it is there in shobindo's own handwriting also let the new birth become manifest in your heart so we know these birthday messages were given by shobindo and the mother and for a long time it was given in the ashram also it was so beautiful some of the early cards even 80s uh, like in shobindo's writing and you will see that and in so powerful you know when you receive it now everything has become standardized <laughs> so it was let the new birth become manifest in your heart and radiate in calm and joy 
and take up all the parts of your being mind and vision and will and feeling and life and body let each date in your life be a date of its growth and greater completeness till all in you is the child of the mother let the light and power and presence envelop you and protect and cherish and foster till all in your inner and outer existence is one movement and an expression of its peace and strength and ananda very beautiful and the last which is um, there used to be one of the persons who was in shubhendra's attendance was dr satyendra thakur so this is given to him it is a message on the birthday also it's a sadhana in its own right this one line is message and sadhana yoga in its own right a veil behind the heart a lid over the mind divide us from the divine love and devotion rend the veil in the quietude of the mind the lid thins and vanishes two things we have to practice love and devotion this veil opens and quietude of the mind i'll read this again and with which we can stop a veil behind the heart a lid over the mind divide us from the divine love and devotion rend the veil in the quietude of the mind the lid thins and vanishes namaste